0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back of the Bible Canada. On our last program of week one of our series, Journey to the Cross, we'll explore what happened on Tuesday evening of the Passion Week. So let's open up to the Gospels with Dr. John Newfeld as he discusses what Jesus told his disciples concerning the end times on today's lesson, The Journey Will End in Triumph. I can only imagine the emotional turmoil and
1: exhaustion of Jesus' disciples after the events of Tuesday. On Sunday, they watched him ride into Jerusalem, being hailed as the long-awaited Messiah. Monday, however, seemed strange, yet everything seemed on track. Jesus had roared through the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers, and demanding that his house would be called a house of prayer. Then on Tuesday, everything degenerated into conflict. On the positive side, Jesus had done more than hold his own. He had outmaneuvered the Jewish religious leaders and exposed their evil and hypocrisy. But on the other hand, these men had real power, and they would not take being made to look bad lying down. But more than anything, what must have rung in the minds of the disciples were the negative comments Jesus seemed to make about the temple. And so on this emotional, controversial, and contentious day, Jesus signaled it was time to leave Jerusalem once more. Once more, they would take the three-kilometer trek back down the Kidron Valley and up the other side through the Mount of Olives and then back to Bethany where he would spend the night. Matthew puts it this way, Jesus left the temple and was going away. We should note that as Jesus leaves the temple this day, that he will never return to it again. He has just wept and said, your house is left to you desolate. A number of Bible teachers have seen the parallel between Jesus leaving the temple on this day and the glory of God leaving the temple in the book of Ezekiel just prior to its destruction by the Babylonian army. If these Bible teachers are correct in this observation, then Jesus leaving the temple symbolizes that it will now be destroyed. As Jesus' disciples follow him down the Kidron Valley and up the other side, Jesus has them sit down on the Mount of Olives where they can view the temple. Matthew simply mentions they were pointing out features of the temple, but Mark adds that they said, "'Teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings.'" From their vantage point, the temple rose in all its beauty with its pure golden roof adorning the Holy of Holies, shining in the magnificence of the afternoon and evening sun. And with a heavy heart, he tells them that this temple will not last much longer. Not one stone will be left on another. According to the biblical account, the first temple was destroyed when the Babylonians burned it. But after 70 years of exile, Israel returned to the promised land. Then in 536 BC, the foundation was laid to the second temple, and an altar was dedicated in the exact spot where the previous one had stood. In time, the entire temple was rebuilt but also in the time of Herod the Great, Herod undertook a massive expansion project on the temple, bringing it to a place of great splendor. By the time of Jesus, this expansion project had not yet been completed. Indeed, it would never be completed. The Romans would burn this temple down before it was ever completely finished. And so on that Tuesday afternoon towards evening, Jesus sits with his disciples looking at the temple from the Mount of Olives and tells them that the destruction of this temple will be so complete, not one stone will be left on another. The disciples are amazed and overwhelmed at what he has just said. They didn't understand the fig tree and they didn't understand the driving out of the money changers, but now he speaks as plainly as possible. And with their minds reeling at this announcement, they finally speak. When is this going to happen? And then they jump to the next obvious question, what will be the sign of the closing of the age and of your coming? For them, the destruction of the temple must mean the destruction of their nation, and if their nation is about to be destroyed, this must be a sign that the end of the ages is upon them. How soon? Now, we know that this conversation happened 2,000 years ago, and we know the temple was destroyed in AD 70, and the end of the world was still a long time away. But we must not dismiss the disciples so easily. Since God has made eternal promises to Israel, and since what Jesus was talking about seemed like the destruction of the nation, and since Peter and the others had already recognized that Jesus was the long awaited Messiah, the question they are asking makes all the sense in the world. And so on that afternoon, from the Mount of Olives, affording them a spectacular view of the temple, Jesus teaches them what is now being called the Olivet Discourse. I need to say at the outset that what Jesus taught his disciples that night has continued to fascinate Bible teachers today, and more so our eschatology, or our doctrine of last things, uses this teaching as the basis for all that the Bible teaches on this matter. And since Jesus taught this during Passion Week, when every event of that week remained so vivid in the memory of the disciples, we can only assume how important Jesus thought this matter was. He begins with a very important statement. See that no one leads you astray. And what he has in mind, as we will see, has everything to do with false prophecies regarding his second coming. How easy it will be in the future when I have ascended to my Father and have left you that you may become misled in this matter. Don't overreact, he says. And then he tells them about the beginning of birth pains, indicating that his coming is going to be a bit further away than they had imagined. I remember when my wife Kathy was pregnant with our first. She had finished university, and I was still a student in the university, and we were living in Saskatoon, and it was a glorious summer day. We had taken a stroll together along the banks of the South Saskatchewan River, which flows through the center of the city, along which are some very picturesque walking trails. She was very pregnant, and we were now a long distance from where I had parked the car. And suddenly, for the first time in her life, she felt a contraction and I had never had a wife with a contraction before, and I began to imagine the worst-case scenario. I could see me delivering our baby by myself and washing it off on the shores of the river. Thankfully, it was not to be. The birth of the baby was still weeks away. I could have relaxed, and that's the image. Jesus is helping his disciples not to become overly panicked by birth pangs. And so Jesus mentions seven labor pains, or seven signs that the earth is convulsing and waiting for the end. But they are not to be alarmed. Just like me, standing on the shores of the South Saskatchewan River, this was not the time, but merely a first sign that a great day was hastening on. So Jesus gives seven labor pains. The first is false messiahs will come leading many astray, false saviors. And by the way, these have appeared at every age and will continue until Christ returns. They are a contraction, a convulsing of the earth, but the end is not yet. Then second labor pain, wars nation rising against nation. The third, famines and earthquakes. Now the fourth, persecution against believers. Jesus makes it plain that not only will he be falsely put to death, but so will his followers. Acts 6 records the stoning of the first martyr, a man named Stephen. Acts 12 records the martyrdom of the first of the twelve apostles, James put to death with the sword. History records that the apostle Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified. The first several hundred years of the church saw terrible suffering, and today, that death toll just keeps going on. And as Jesus said, whole nations would hate his followers. Today, the leading nations in the world that persecute Christians are, and let me list some of them, North Korea, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Iran, Pakistan, Eritrea, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Yemen. I mean, actually, the real list is much longer than that, but we are living in a day where the followers of Christ face persecution, imprisonment, ridicule, threats, and even death. Jesus said, notice the contractions. And then the fifth labor pain, false prophets, along with the sixth, apostasy, a falling away from the true gospel. Satan will recognize the power of what Christ has brought to a ruined planet and will seek to counterfeit the true gospel by bringing confusion. But in the midst of all these labor pains, which sound overwhelmingly ominous and negative, Jesus gives one more, a seventh, which seems sweet and wonderful. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, yes, and then the end will come. Great advancement of the gospel will happen right alongside of great evil. That is what Jesus predicted. When the church began, the gospel was limited to Jerusalem and Judea. But it went to Samaria, into the Middle East, then into what was called Asia, which are the lands around Turkey. It penetrated deeply into Europe, right into the heart of the Roman Empire. Tradition tells us that the Apostle Thomas carried the gospel into India, but still the vast majority of the earth had not yet heard. Today, the gospel has penetrated North and South America. It is deeply heard in China, is growing rapidly in some of the most unusual places in the earth like Iran, and is even found to be growing in places like Northern India, in Russia. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Today, a greater percentage of the world has heard the gospel than at any other time in history. I mean, this is profound and amazing if we think about it. And we ask ourselves, is this indeed the day that Christ was talking about? It may well be. So does this mean that Christ's coming will happen in the next short period of time? Well, we don't know. Only that Christ promised this expansion of his gospel into global dimensions before he came. And when we come back, we will look at what Jesus said next about his second coming.
0: This introduction has given us a lot of insight already into what Jesus meant when he talked about the end of the age and how meaningful it would have been for the disciples who needed reassurance that there was a plan all along despite the coming destruction of the temple. I think this reminds us as well that even as our world gets increasingly darkened, the gospel will continue to grow. After the break we'll see the final birth pain that Jesus described, indicating when he'll truly return. Proverbs 9, 10, and 11 says, "'The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life.' The Bible has much to say about the importance of wisdom in our walk with God. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to Dr. Neufeld's last series on the subject called Skillful Living. This one-week series focused on some of the key passages in Proverbs, helping us get an overview of what it means to walk in wisdom. We want you to connect with the wisdom God so generously offers. So for this month only, you can receive skillful living for free. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. Those of
1: you who have given birth to children and those of us who are your husbands remember your contractions. But as you remember, the contractions themselves might not mean that your baby is coming right away, but it does mean it is on the way. But how would the disciples know that persecution, false prophets, wars, and worldwide evangelism would really usher in a time of the end? What evidence did they have that this was really the birth pains of the end? And sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple, Jesus patiently takes his disciples to one specific contraction— one very sharp pain, and this sharp pain will be the prophetic test case. He is speaking about something he calls the abomination that causes desolation. Let me read to you what Jesus actually said. I'm reading from Matthew 24, 15 to 21. It says, and when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, uh, Matthew adds words, let the reader understand. Jesus goes on speaking, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No will never be again. The phrase abomination that causes desolation comes from the book of Daniel, found in both chapters 9 and 11. In Daniel, it's a prophetic reference to something that was fulfilled in 167 B.C. Assyrian commander Antiochus erected a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem, then built an altar and sacrificed a pig on it and with that made the practice of Judaism punishable by death. Furthermore, he gave himself the title Epiphanes, meaning he was the manifestation of God. If ever there was a picture of an Antichrist, this man Antiochus was it. Borrowing that image, which both Jesus and his disciples would have known, many Bible teachers point out that Jesus' words on the Mount of Olives were fulfilled in the year AD 70, an event that has been called the War Against the Jews. Jesus calls this period the most monstrous and savage attack against a people in human history. The devastation of Jerusalem stretched beyond Jerusalem so that the Jews literally fled to the mountains and hid in caves. The Romans were brutal, killing all with no mercy, that anyone who had time to get away had no time to go home and collect their belongings. They just ran. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that time was a time of unprecedented suffering. He tells of savagery, wanton slaughter followed by disease, in which mothers even ate their own children to survive the siege the Romans laid on Jerusalem. Yes, there have been greater numbers of deaths in human history, but there was never been a time in history in which so high a percentage of a city's population was so thoroughly and painfully exterminated, with the few remaining enslaved, as the time of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. As a side note, Most Christians at that time remembering this prophecy of Jesus had already fled the city by AD 68. Now if I understand this rightly, that Jesus is pointing to a date about 35 years in the future, then does the Olivet Discourse not look to the time of the end of the age? Well, yes it does. I think after having given the prophetic test case, the sharp pain, as we've put it, Jesus gets back to the warnings that are approaching the time of the end. He then tells us that the days of the end will be shortened. Undoubtedly, he is expecting that the signs of birth pains he has mentioned will increase in intensity. Indeed, the famines, the earthquakes, the diseases, the persecution and false prophets and false Christs will become acute. If God did not shorten these days, no one would survive. And now then, Jesus uses a word he has not used before. It is the word tribulation. The word means great distress. If I understand Jesus rightly, he is saying that the birth pains lead to a time of suffering called the tribulation. It may be that the abomination that causes desolation, seen in the time of Antiochus in 167 B.C. and in the time of the Roman Emperor Titus in A.D. 70, is but a type or a foreshadowing of a tribulation yet to come. During this time, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heavens. Great celestial signs will mark the troubling of the earth. And when it seems like no one can survive, it is then that the Son of Man will come in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. It is then that the angels will be sent out with the trumpet call of God and will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. You can imagine Jesus and his disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple as the sun is setting on that Tuesday evening. Every eye is wide open. None of them foresaw this. They expected that Jesus ride into Jerusalem would establish him as king now. Instead, they see two things. First, they see that when he comes as ruling king, it won't be on a humble donkey the way he did two days earlier. It will be far more glorious than they had ever imagined. The chief priests won't be arguing with him the way they did today. Indeed, the entire earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And he will come not on a donkey, but on the clouds of heaven with splendor unequaled. But they also saw that this time was further away than they had anticipated. Before this event happened, a great troubling of the earth would happen. Birth pains would lead to severe birth pains. And just in case you wonder, how do I know that God is in control of all this? Watch for the sign of the utter destruction of the temple and the devastation of the nation. That's your test case. You will be shown that everything is proceeding according to plan. But Jesus is not done. No one knows the day or the hour of my second coming, he says. It will be like the days of Noah. It will be like two men in a field. One will be taken into judgment, and one remains left in the field and is spared. And while the disciples are reeling from what they have heard, he tells them parables. One is the parable of a faithful servant who doesn't know when his master is coming, so he remains faithful, not knowing the day or the hour of his master's return. Then there's the parable of the ten virgins waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom, five of who were faithful as they waited, and five who foolishly forgot that the bridegroom was coming at any moment. And then another parable, the parable of the talents, Faithful servants multiplied their resources, expecting the master would demand an accounting when he returned, and unfaithful ones frittered away all their master's resources. And with these parables, Jesus, knowing that he has his disciples' attention, reminds them that he will come as reigning king, gathering all the nations of humanity before his throne, welcoming some to eternal dwellings. And condemning many to eternal punishment. Yes, the day will come when he separates the sheep from the goats. There might have been so many questions then. If the timing of your coming and the end of the age, and when you ascend on David's throne to judge the nations, is still some time away, what are we doing in Jerusalem right now? Why did you ride into Jerusalem with such fanfare two days ago as the crowd shouted, Hail to the King and waved palm branches as a sign of the coming of the Messiah. If you aren't going to do what they expected right now, but are determined to delay that until later, why are we here? And of course, they never asked the question. I think they were so overwhelmed as they stared at the temple that not one stone will be left on another. All of this would end in horrible tragedy. We do know that Jesus did tell them that after two days I will be crucified in Jerusalem. And we do know that one of the twelve, Judas, was so overwhelmed and so discouraged by what he heard on the Mount of Olives that he ran off to the chief priests and agreed to betray Jesus. He was done with the Jesus movement. But Jesus now set his face toward a painful and bloody cross. Stay with us as next week we again point the way to Jesus' journey
0: to the cross. Dr. Neufeld, this is a pretty ominous message. And I think it's one of those subjects that we either try to ignore or we obsess over. So in the light of all that you've said, in the light of Christ's coming, how should we respond as Jesus followers?
1: Ben, you're absolutely right that we either obsess or we ignore. All of us know of individuals who have set dates, I mean, it wasn't that long ago when people were saying either the year 2000 or 2001 would be the time of Christ uh, coming. Others have said dates as well. We should never do that, but at the same time, we should learn to live expectantly. We know not the day of the hour when our Lord might return, and we should live godly lives expecting at any moment the great event of the second coming of Christ will be upon us. I think that expectancy ought to mark our ways.
0: Thanks so much for this week, Dr. John, and we look forward to next week as we continue our series in Journey to the Cross. How would you feel if you were in the disciples' shoes? Overwhelmed? Confused? Frightened? I hope that today's message has benefited you as we've tried to unpack what Jesus really taught about the end times amid some of the contradictory things we sometimes hear. It is a relevant passage that applies not only to the disciples, but to us as well. May we live wisely and be prepared for Christ's coming when he judges the nations in the fullness of his glory and power. Let us take comfort in the fact that Jesus will rule this earth one day. And if we're in Christ, we will be with our great King. That concludes our first week of Journey to the Cross. Join us next week as we relive those last few days before and leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. C.S. Lewis wrote, Our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Back to the Bible Canada, we believe that God has called us for a purpose. To bring people the knowledge of God and in so doing, giving a meaning to their lives that cannot be found anywhere else. Through teaching His Word, we can help them discover what is truly worth living for. If you want to help us carry on this mission, please partner with us today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or donate online at backtothebible.ca.